choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 285 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, more problems. Fred Hayes noticed the fever beginning at about 3 o'clock Thursday morning. He felt the usual symptoms fevers produce. Lightheadedness, ashen skin, tingling nerve endings, etc., The first clue he had that he might be getting sick came Wednesday morning when he tried, for one of the few times in the past day, to urinate and had noticed that it was extremely painful. Of course, nobody aboard Apollo 13 had been doing much urinating lately, and the reason was simple. They hadn't been doing much drinking. As the tailmuse had told the astronauts during the earliest hours of the mission's crises, water was one of the most precious consumables the crew had. Since the water supply in Odyssey would quickly freeze, the supply in Aquarius would be the only usable one. But since the water for drinking and the water for cooling the equipment were drawn from the same tank, the crew would have to think carefully about taking so much as a sip. If they drank too freely from the central supply, they could easily wind up quenching their thirst at the expense of the spaceship that was keeping them alive. But even if there had been plenty of water aboard, there were other reasons for the crew to pass it up. Similar to the command module, The LIM was equipped with a venting system that would allow the crew to dump urine and other wastewater overboard. The problem was, expelling this fluid, like any other liquid or gas streaming from a spacecraft, created a tiny propulsive force that could change the trajectory of the ship. With Odyssey and Aquarius having so much trouble maintaining attitude, and with the crew having labored so hard to get themselves back into the center of their re-entry corridor, it seemed dangerous and silly to urinate themselves back out of it. Instead, what urine the astronauts did produce in the past 48 hours, they had been instructed to store in plastic bags gathered around the ship. Over the course of two days, Three grown men, even water-deprived men, could produce an inconvenient amount of urine, and the interior of the spacecraft had begun to grow cluttered with the plastic-sealed urine containers. To limit the accumulation of even more specimens, the astronauts decided to quit drinking almost entirely, 
limiting themselves to about six ounces of water per day, less than a sixth of the average adult intake. The crew was well aware that the results of such deprivation could be serious. Time and again during the training, the flight surgeons had cautioned all astronauts that if they did not consume and pass enough water in space, their bodies could not excrete toxins. And if they did not excrete toxins, the noxious substances would accumulate in their kidneys, leading to an infection which could be recognized first by burning during urination, then by a high fever. At 10 o'clock Wednesday morning, Hayes had experienced the first symptom, and now at 3 o'clock Thursday morning, just 33 hours before he would be expected to participate in perhaps the most perilous re-entry in the history of lunar spaceflight, he noticed the second symptom. Jim Lovell glanced over at his pale crewmate. Hey, Fredo, you all right? Yeah, sure, I'm fine. Why? Hayes mumbled. You don't look so fine. That's why. Well, I am. You want me to get the thermometer, Fred? It's right upstairs in the first aid kit, Swigert asked. No, don't bother. You sure, Swigert asked? I'm sure. It's no problem. I said I'm fine, the limb pilot repeated firmly. Okay, Swigert said, exchanging a look with Lovell. Okay. Lovell regarded both his crewmates and thought about what he should do next. But before he could reach any conclusions, his thoughts were interrupted. From beneath the limb's floor there was a dull pop, then a hiss, then another thump and a vibration rattled through the cabin. Lovell leapt forward toward his window. Below the cluster of thrusters far to the left of his field of vision, he could see a far too familiar cloud of icy crystals floating upward. For an instant, Lovell was startled, and then, just as quickly, he knew what the sound and the event were. That was the end of our helium problem, Lovell said to his crewmates. About time, Hayes said, looking at his watch. I'd almost forgotten about it, Swigert admitted. And uh, we see the pressure dropping at this time. The control officer uh, reports that the burst disc uh, has ruptured. We just, uh, as we were making this announcement. Anything? Yeah, Jack, I was just about ready to call you. Underneath quad four, I noticed a lot of sparklies uh, coming out. Did you hear or feel anything? I sure can, but uh, I think it changed our uh, it changed our, our uh, PCC. Let me check it through the drip is. Okay, she's going down through 600 now. I think we're probably going to have to reestablish PCC. Yeah, we got a pretty fast uh, yard this Jack. The descent module's rupture disc finally blew at 1,921 pounds per square inch. The helium used to pressurize the descent module's fuel system was now escaping into space. As the commander looked out his window at the spreading helium cloud, he could see that the Earth and the Moon, which had been passing by the approximate center of his window 
as the spacecraft spun through the passive thermal control rotation had moved noticeably, with the Earth rising higher and the moon falling lower, both threatening to move out of his field of vision altogether. And we understood you to say that okay. it uh, reversed your yaw. Is that affirmative? I uh, sure did, Jack. It reversed my yaw completely and put it in a little pitch, I think. Uh, perhaps you can tell how fast I'm having to shift dominate. Yeah, we can tell it come uh, cycling back and forth. Is uh, that what they call a non-propulsive vent? Right, I'd hate to see a propulsive one. Give me both. It's going through 50 pounds now, so uh, are you seeing uh, fewer sparklies? Yeah, much fewer. Uh, hardly any at all now. I'm not sure whether that uh, vent gave me uh, reverse yaw a little uh, left roll. That might have, uh, it, it, that might, uh, what it gave me. You say you think it uh, might have given you some left roll as opposed to opposite yaw. Okay, well, we'd kind of like to uh, watch it, see what happens for a little while before we make a recommendation. Uh, however, we'll need some inputs from you on that. Well, we're in no, uh, no trouble up here as far as, uh, as, far as the uh, uh, yaw goes. Everything's fine. It's faster than we had set up before. Just as long as we're getting the proper thermal uh, constraints and... Uh, we don't see any thermal problems as a result of uh, this change. If we see some communications problems, we may have to uh, do something different, but uh, so far so good. And uh, we'd kind of like to hear from you on uh, LPD numbers uh, if you get anything going by the window. Okay, we'll go. Lovell settled down in front of his window and began to watch the earth and moon move by. The movement of the bodies was almost hypnotic, and in the quiet pre-dawn hours of Thursday, Lovell found a curious tranquility come over him. He knew that within the next hour or two, he might have to re-engage his attitude control jets and once again go through the whole tedious routine of establishing the PTC role. But, right now, that caused him little concern. As Lovell gazed out the left porthole, his crew apparently became affected by the same strange serenity and decided to bunk down for an unscheduled rest period. The feverish haze, avoiding the frigid command module, instead backed halfway up the tunnel, and with his head hovering over the ascent engine cover, fell instantly asleep. Swaggart, claiming the limb pilot spot Hayes had abandoned, curled up on the floor on the starboard side and wrapped a wire restraint around his arm to hold himself in place. Lovell watched them both settle in. Back at mission control, Jerry Bostick, the Maroon Team Flight Dynamics Officer, had not even begun his shift, and he was already having a bad day. He suspected it would soon get worse. As Bostick stood behind Dave Reed, the FIDO officer that was on duty, he noticed a problem with a reading on the display. 
he swore to himself just loud enough for Reed to hear. What's the problem, Jerry? Reed asked. Bostick reached around Reed, ran his index finger down a column of numbers on the screen, and came to rest on a single data point. Reed leaned forward and squinted. The column Bostick was pointing to was labeled trajectory. The number he was pointing to was 6.15. Oh no, Reed groaned, dropping his head into his hands. Since 10 o'clock Wednesday night, after Apollo 13's mid-course correction was executed, the number on the screen had been one of the most encouraging bits of telemetry streaming back from the ship. Earlier in the evening, before the burn of the descent stage, the trajectory of Aquarius and Odyssey had deteriorated to 5.9 degrees, just a little more than half a degree away from the shallow end of the re-entry corridor, the end that would prevent the crew from descending through the atmosphere and instead bounce off it back into space. After the mid-course correction burn, things looked much better, with Apollo 13 climbing up to a comfortable 6.24 degrees, close to the 6.5 degrees that marked a perfect bullseye re-entry. Now, however, at 8 o'clock Thursday morning, 28 hours before splashdown, the trajectory appeared to be decaying again. Bostick and Reed pondered what the problem could be. They immediately eliminated the helium burst disk because it was not nearly enough to move the spacecraft that far. They checked the tracking arcs, but they were working properly as well. If the helium and the tracking data weren't the problem, and the spacecraft was truly dropping to the bottom of its corridor, it meant that the LIMS descent engine would have to be fired again to straighten things out. But with the helium that pressurized the fuel tanks gone, it was questionable if the engine could be fired again. Before Bostick could contemplate this new development, Glenn Lunny, the black team flight director, approached him from behind. Jerry, Lunny said, I need to talk to you. We've got a problem. I've got a problem here, Glenn, Bostick said. It looks like we're shallowing again. Are your tracking arcs good, Lunny asked. They appear to be, Bostick said. Are you venting anything? Not that we can see, Bostick said. Well, make that your priority, Lunny said. But start working on this, too. I just got a call from the Atomic Energy Commission. They're worried about the limb. Bostick had been afraid of this. During the limb's brief planned stay on the lunar surface, Jim Lovell and Fred Hayes were supposed to leave behind a number of automated scientific instruments, including a seismograph and a solar wind collector and a laser reflector. Since the experiments were intended to operate for well over a year, and since fuel cells or batteries could not keep them running that long, the equipment was instead powered by a miniature nuclear reactor fueled by spent uranium taken from nuclear power plants. On the surface of the moon, the tiny generator posed no danger to anyone. 
When the system was first proposed, some people worried about what would happen if the little rod of nuclear fuel never made it to the moon. What if the Saturn V rocket blew up before the spacecraft even reached Earth orbit, dropping the uranium who knows where? To prevent such accidental contamination, the LIMS designers agreed to seal the craft's nuclear material in a heavy, heat-resistant ceramic cask that would allow it to survive an explosion, a fiery atmospheric reentry, and even a violent collision with the planet's surface without any leakage of radiation. Once a limb was out of Earth's orbit and on its way to the moon, the protective cast became superfluous, and nobody gave it another thought. But now, Apollo 13's limb was on its way home, heading for the fiery re-entry the doomsayers had feared. And Jerry Bostick had been suspecting that the Atomic Energy Commission might soon come poking around, worrying about the radioactive rod and its ceramic protection. When did you hear from them, Glenn? Bostick now asked Lunny. Just a while ago. They're pretty jumpy about that fuel rod, Lunny said. Did you tell them we've tested the cask repeatedly? I did, Lunny said. And did you tell them we have no reason to think it won't survive re-entry? I did, Lunny replied. And they didn't believe you? Oh, they believe me, but they still want insurance. They want to make sure that when the limb comes down, we don't just dump it in any old ocean, but in the deepest water we can find. Can you handle that for them? Glenn Lunny probably agreed with Jerry Bostick, but the Atomic Energy Commission was an arm of the federal government, the same government that paid NASA's bills, and if the people who controlled the agency's purse strings wanted a flight director to address this problem, then the flight director would have no choice but to comply. Lunny continued to listen sympathetically while his Fido blew all steam. Certainly, the first order of business had to be fixing Apollo 13's shallowing trajectory, but once that was taken care of, wouldn't it be a simple matter to humor the Atomic Energy Commission, pick an especially bottomless patch of ocean, and aim the limb to come down there? We'll take care of it, Glenn, Bostick finally said. No problem. I think there might be a spot off New Zealand that would be just what you're looking for. Lunny nodded gratefully and went off to tend to other things, and Bostick returned to his own business, turning back to his console. He could see Reed looking even more worried than he had a few minutes ago. Bostick quickly checked the screen and saw that the flight path, which had been deteriorating before, seemed to be collapsing altogether. The number in the trajectory column was just a fraction above 6.0 degrees, and continuing to fall. Back on the spacecraft, Hayes and Swigert had awoke from their three-hour rest period, and they seemed to be marginally refreshed. In fact, Swigert looked almost chipper, and Hayes, whose face had been a sickly gray yesterday, looked flush now. Lovell was not sure if Hayes' rosiness was a sign of renewed health or a symptom of an even higher fever. 
But Hayes had already made it clear that he did not welcome inquiries into the matter of his health, and Lovell decided to respect that preference. For the first hour, the entire crew was up on their last full day in space. They rattled around the cockpit, attending to their various chores without even speaking. Then, Capcom Lausma came back on the air. Jim, the uh, next action item we want to pursue is transferring some LEM power up to uh, command module main B so we can start charging battery. And uh, so, Jim, we're having trouble uh, hearing you. The next order of business is to uh, charge battery A, and when uh, you've got somebody to help you there, well, we'll go get on with it. And uh, before you start working on it, uh, let us know because we've got some deltas to the uh, battery charging procedure. Swigert signed on to copy down the battery procedure. As Lovell monitored the conversation, he began to grow concerned. Finally, he spoke up and called out to Swigert. Are they sure they want to mess around with the electricity now? We've still got to run this limb for 24 more hours. Swigert relayed Jim's questions to the ground. Uh, if we uh, configure the CSM uh, for uh, powering from the limb, we aren't going to cut us short on limb power requirements to get us back to entry interface, are we? That's a negative, uh, Jack. According to the latest update, uh, we've got ampere hours out to 203 hours. Then Lovell wanted to know if they had tried this procedure of charging from the lunar module to the command module before. Lausma replied, This uh, procedure has not been tried out as such. However, the uh, hardware paths through which the current flows uh, are the same ones which we used uh, during uh, translunar trajectory, and uh, there's not a problem with shorting out a descent battery over. Of course, the reason for all this is that uh, we'll see we're 20 amp hour, 20 amp hours short on uh, one of the entry batteries, and uh, we've got to uh, juice that up to to get you home with. Okay. Lovell grumbled his agreement. Swigert got back on the line and spent much of the morning copying the procedure and going back and forth between the two ships, throwing the necessary switches to execute the procedure and monitoring the current as it was transferred from one spacecraft to the other. Later, just as the crew had settled down to eat, Joe Kerwin's voice came over the headset, informing the crew that Fido was considering another mid-course correction. Lovell, Swigert, and Hayes gave one another a dubious look. Lovell didn't like this at all. If the limb's descent engine was indeed out of commission following the helium disk burst, 
the attitude control jets could probably handle the job. But while a two foot per second burn would take just a few seconds of low throttle power from the big descent system engine, it would take a good half minute of full bore fire from the little thrusters running them to near exhaustion of fuel. I don't like the sounds of this, Lovell said to Hayes. I am with you, Hayes agreed. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 285 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 13, More Problems. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. want to give a big shout out to all my listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to all my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Are you looking for old episodes of the podcast? The first 112 episodes are now available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. Today, we salute our Mercury-level donors. There are 50 Mercury donors so far this year. Mercury donors contribute $20 or more during the calendar year. Thanks for your continued support, Mercury donors. My sources for this episode were Lost Moon by Jim Lovell, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Flight by Chris Craft, NASA Apollo 13 Technical Air-to-Ground Voice Transcription, the Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. Had a few afterthoughts on this episode. Just when it looked like smooth sailing, NASA got a bunch of new problems to deal with. The most pressing was the shallowing of the trajectory of the spacecraft heading for a position where it would bounce off the atmosphere of the Earth. Then, with the expected blowing of the rupture disk, it seemed as if the LIM's main engine could not be used to accomplish another burn. Then, there's urine bags cluttering up the place. But I agree with the decision to limit drinking water. But Hayes still gets sick and doesn't want to talk about it. So, (laughs) one-third of your crew might be ill during a crucial moment. Then, we need to charge the re-entry batteries. You know, I can see why Lovell would be concerned about monkeying around with the electrical system, considering how the flight had gone thus far but there wasn't much choice. Then the Atomic Energy Commission chimes in (laughs) because they're worried where the small nuclear reactor will land, which, you know, they might have a very good point on that issue. So, you definitely don't want it hitting land. Just when you think everything is going well and we can go through reentry and splash down and finish this Apollo 13 up, a bunch of more problems crop up. <laughs> okay, I've placed the audio and some pictures for this episode on the homepage spacerockethistory.com. We were pleased to receive several donations to support the podcast over the past week. Our first donor for 2019 was Mark Lewis from Philadelphia. 
He donated at the Apollo level and earned his galaxy emoji. Mark U donated at the Orion level and earned his moon emoji. Ken A. from Washington donated at the Apollo level and earned his galaxy emoji. Wayne and Naomi Holmes from Washington donated at the Apollo level and earned their galaxy emoji. Chris D. from California donated at the Apollo level and earned his rocket emoji. Andrew M. from Illinois donated at the Apollo level. Paul K. from Wisconsin donated at the Gemini level and earned his shooting star emoji. Daryl M. donated at the Gemini level and earned his rocket emoji. Graham M. from Australia donated at the Mercury level and earned his galaxy emoji. Robert M. from Texas donated at the Mercury level and earned his shooting star emoji. Roy B. from the UK donated at the Mercury level and earned his satellite emoji. Graham S. from the UK donated at the Mercury level and earned his satellite emoji. Tobias S. donated at the Mercury level and earned his moon emoji. David D. from Maine donated at the Mercury level and earned his rocket emoji. Tobias L. from Braunschweig, Germany donated at the Vostok level and earned his moon emoji. He thought this year's new donation should honor Mrs. SRH for her support. And I do too, and she was just delighted to hear that. Thank you, Tobias. PJW increased his pledge on Patreon to the Orion level and earned his satellite emoji, and Lowry H. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. All Patreon donors that honored their pledge for December and remained active for January were given a longevity emoji promotion. Please check your listing on the donors page and let me know if I need to make any corrections. Make sure you're on the right level and you have the correct longevity emoji. And thank you for your patience as we got the donor page ready from, uh, for 2019 from 2018. It took a good bit of work to get everything transferred over and thank you very much for your patience. Our Patreon donors remain at 219 with a goal of reaching 300 for 2019. And our total donors for 2019 have reached 234 with a goal of reaching 600 in 2019. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated in 2019, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. You may have noticed that we don't have any commercials or ad revenue. We are entirely listener-supported. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. For the 234 of you who have already donated for 2019, I certainly appreciate it. This week we're giving away the new official SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Mrs. SRH randomly selected Christian Rochelle. Christian, if you would email me, Mike, at spacerockethistory.com and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I'll try to get episode number 286 out by next Thursday. So long for now.